morning, guys. Happy New Year to you. Oh, thank you. I hope Santa came down your chimney. <laughs> Got a bunch of Santas in this room. Well, as I told the folks uh, here a second, my Christmas present was a baby. I had a granddaughter born on Christmas Day, which is really thrilling. Kind of tops off the day. Folks, uh, let's turn. You remember which book of the Bible we're studying? Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. And uh, let me just kind of help sweep out the cobwebs <laughs> from last semester and over the holidays. Basically, what's happening is the children of Israel are standing now on the east side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to take their inheritance, the promised land. They've been in slavery now for over 400 years. None of these people have any memory of being a free people. And they're getting ready to go in and take a land to be their own. They've never been able to farm their own land, build their own houses on their own property, make their own laws, govern their own cities. I mean, this is just out of state. So... They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And before they do, Moses gives them his final speech. And really, there are a series of speeches as we've seen. But it's his final instructions to the people of God about how to manage life in the promised land and how to hang on to it, how to take it and seize it and keep it. And at the root of this is how to stay in intimate, faithful relationship with the God who brought them out of slavery and the God who is going to give them this land. And this is so vital for us because we, too, have an inheritance. It's the new heavens and the new earth. God is preparing a place for us, we're told. This place is magnificent. It's better than anything Adam and Eve ever saw before the fall. And we are beginning our relationship with Him right now. And we want to keep that relationship because we want to experience our promised land too. And we've seen that God in this relationship makes covenant with us. He binds Himself to us like we're supposed to in our marriages. He takes vows, marriage vows to us. And he is faithful. And in this, these speeches of Moses, we have seen that Moses uh, sets up his presentation along the lines of an ancient treaty form where the suzerain king would explain to the vassal kings that he had conquered, hey, here's our deal. I'm going to protect you and I'm going to make an alliance with you, kind of the NATO-type alliance, but here's what you owe me. Here's the tribute that's due me for us to keep this relationship going. That's a typical treaty form. And Moses uses that treaty form. It's called a covenant to explain his relationship with us. And we saw in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, it begins with a preamble to the covenant. Let's introduce the parties. Let's rehearse who you are and who I am. Now, we've noticed in that preamble <clears throat> that we don't come out looking very good. <laughs> because if you want to describe us, 
Well, we've had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. We blew it every time. That's, that's our story. And then God introduces himself. And he's the God who, after you blew it, every time, after time, after time, he was always there to pick you up, pick you up, pick you up. Why? Because of his own character. He's faithful. When he swears something, he keeps his word. He has integrity. And so in the preamble to the covenant, we were introduced to the parties. Here's your history. Here's his history. (laughs) Now, what that spells is grace. The grace of our relationship with God is beautifully demonstrated by just simply looking at the preamble. Look at our history. Look at the way this thing has been working. And then we saw God not only says, here's our history, but here's our future. Here's where I'm taking you. I've kept all these promises in the past. I've made this future promise. Do you think I'm going to keep it? Well, check my track record, and you'll see I'm going to keep it. So we, have a, we remember our past, and we're looking forward to this beautiful future, and this is the preamble. And then when we got to chapter 5, all the way through chapter 11, which took most of our time in the fall, we saw the terms of the covenant. You have the preamble, and then you have what are called the stipulations. And Moses begins with what we call general stipulations. That is, there's a, there's a whole attitude in your relationship. And you know this is true in your workplace. If you get attitudes right, you get ethos right, you really don't need a big policy manual. It, it more is, is ethos. And so the first 11, uh, five, chapters 5 through 11 are basically teaching us the ethos of the relationship with God. And we've seen what that ethos is, that it consists of some, some real fundamentals like fear the Lord. He's powerful. He's awesome. Give him the reverence and the deference and the submission and the awe and the wonder that he is due. Stop treating him like whatever and give him worship. Give him awe. Give him reverence. So fear the Lord. Things like obey the Lord. (laughs) Check out what pleases Him. Make that your life's agenda. That's what it means to be in covenant with Him, that you sign on to His laws being your laws, your conscience, your way of living, your values, everything. You embrace the whole thing with no exceptions, no exemptions, no excuses, no reservations. Obey the Lord. Keep His commandments. Things like love the Lord. Adore Him. Not just fear and respect Him, but adore Him. Love Him. Have intimacy with Him. Want to draw near to Him. Value Him. Esteem Him. And seek Him. Now this is the general ethos of the stipulations of the covenant. In other words, this covenant's not going to work if you don't have in your heart these deep affections with respect to the Lord of the covenant. Now, when we get, got to chapter 12, right before Christmas, we began to look at the specific stipulations. Moses is basically saying, okay, now let's back up. We got the ethos. We got the general way in which you're to approach him and the way in which you're to think about him and to feel toward him and to respond to him. Now let's back up, and Moses doesn't do this in detail and in perfect order, 
But in chapters 12 through 26, we get what are the specific stipulations. And generally what he's doing is going back through the Ten Commandments that he gave us in chapter 5 as part of the general stipulations. Generally speaking, here are the commandments. Now, verses, uh, chapters 12 to 26, now let's go back through them and let's apply these things. Now, let's look at some things in your life to which these commandments apply and let's be sure you understand exactly what I mean. It's amazing to me how you and I can read the Bible and get a commandment and go, yeah, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> Until you begin to read some other parts of the Bible that kind of massage that into your life, you go, whoa, man, I wasn't doing that at all. I just hadn't taken it deeply enough. I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't meditated on the law. Well, Moses is going to help us meditate on the law. Now, we started this with chapter 12 then, and we saw that the first commandment is to have no other God before you. You say, well, I... I believe in God. I don't, I don't believe in any other God. I believe in the God of the Bible. Doesn't that get it? Hang on. Uh, Moses is going to say, let, let me show you exactly what I mean. And we saw in chapter 12 that if you have no other God, that means you're going to be in the business of promoting the dominion of God wherever you go. Now, in their case, they had a holy assignment, one that we don't have in the same way. They had to cleanse a whole land of its ungodly worship. So there was, not to, there was to be zero tolerance for false worship in the Holy Land. The reason? That land is set apart sacramentally, set apart and consecrated as the place where God is going to demonstrate His pure governance. And He creates a theocracy to do so. Now that theocracy has ended. There is no land in the world that is set apart for that kind of purpose. Those theocracies are over until Christ comes back. And then he will restore a theocracy in the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be a holy land. But these people had the assignment in space and time in history to give us a prelude of what a holy land would really look like. So therefore, there's zero tolerance for false worship. Well, how do you apply that to your life? There's zero tolerance for false worship in the things under your control. And you don't have everything under your control. Memphis is not under your control. The United States is not under your control. It's not under the church's control. So we don't purge the nation of its false worship. But we purge our hearts and our families. And as much as we have the ability to do so, our churches of false worship. Now we saw then in chapter 12 that Moses was telling the people, you must take every external threat seriously. And he tells them to destroy the false idols and, and to destroy their altars, to destroy other people's religious paraphernalia, basically, of the Canaanites. Now, when we turn to chapter 13, he's going to continue to apply this first commandment. And he's going to apply it not with respect to external threats, but rather, gentlemen, internal threats. And honestly, these are the ones that are most dangerous of all. And that's the reason that Moses takes an entire chapter to address it. And I have to say, the, the worst threat you've got in your life is right here in your heart, in, in your flesh. That's your worst problem. But your problems decrease in their weight on your life as they move away from you in concentric circles. 
which is to say the worst problem is right here in your own flesh, and then those relationships that are closest to you, then your church, and then your neighborhood, and so on in concentric circles. That's basically what Moses is saying. You all have a responsibility to deal with the Canaanites, but you have a responsibility to deal with yourselves. And the greatest threats to the first commandment arise within Israel itself. That's what we're going to see in chapter 13. And the application, of course, to us is the same. We get to watch out. We've got to deal with business as it's set before us as Christian men. And there are certain things, if we believe the first commandment, if we embrace it, if we love and fear the Lord, there are things that we're supposed to be doing uh, to take care of the application of that first commandment in our lives and in our closest relationships. Well, to that end then, let's look at chapter 13. And what we're going to see here are three applications. And let me just show you how it breaks out. If you look at verse 1, you have the first one, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises. Then look at, turn the page and look at chapter 6, I mean verse 6. You have the word if again. Here's the second category. If you're a brother. And then look at verse 12. Here's the third instance. If you hear in one of your cities uh, that certain worthless fellows, verse 13. So big crowds of worthless fellows. All those people you have to deal with. All right? Let's take a look at them and look at these three instances. And then we're going to back up and seek to apply it uh, to the, the really desperate need of our own day and our own lives. Let's look then at Deuteronomy 13.1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreamers shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor Shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God has given you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, 
And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I'm commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. Okay, uh, here's the main point of this chapter, I believe. If we are faithful to the first and greatest of the commandments, For his sake, we must be prepared and committed to renounce every other thing we value. If we would be faithful to the first commandment, then we have to be ready to renounce everything in view of our commitment to the Lord. I believe that's the main point that's being made in chapter 12 and in 13. But in 13 what Moses is dealing with are not the Canaanites that you don't know and you really don't like. Here he's dealing with people you really do like, love, and adore. People who can, if you're not very careful, become gods in your life. And your friendships can become gods. Your popularity can become a god. Here are the things that are very precious to you. If you want to keep the first commandment, you have to be ready to renounce that and everything else. Well, let's look at the first example. This includes even charismatic religious leaders, even those who have big toothy smiles and poofy hairdos. They're smooth talkers. If a prophet or a dreamer arises, here's what you're to do. First of all, assess their words. Even if he gives you a sign or a wonder, even if he slays people in the spirit, so to speak, even if he keeps making one leg longer than the other or shortening the legs so that they're equal length or whatever they do is their miracle ministry. No matter what they do, that doesn't prove anything if their words are not faithful to the text, if they're misrepresenting God. And if someone tells you with a big smile that all you have to do is believe in yourself, and have faith in yourself, and remember that you're special, they're lying. That's not all you need to do. They're lying. I don't care how popular they are. I don't care if 50,000 people turn out to hear them. It doesn't matter. Assess their words, not their smile, not their sense of humor, not their appearance, not their popularity. Certainly not whatever jet airplanes they own and fly around in. When I was in Cape Town, South Africa, in November at the Lausanne 3 Congress on World Evangelism, and I listened to the greatest threat to the gospel, not just in, in the States, but internationally. Here's the dominant word I heard from Africa and Asia and South America. 
The biggest threat to the gospel in the world today is what they call the cargo cult or the prosperity gospel. If you believe in Jesus, everything's going to be fine. You'll be healthy if you just have enough faith. You can be wealthy if you just follow me, the preacher who flies around in my planes and lives in palaces. See, God will make you successful. That's the biggest threat most people believe today to the gospel. And these people, most of them are not working miracles. Benny Hinn claims to. But, but not all of them. They just claim to make you successful. It's a big fat lie. Success is on the cross naked with nails in your hands and your feet. That's success. That's fulfilling your mission. And then after that, of course, there'll be this incredible resurrection. There's success. When we get home and we're, we're looking a lot like Jesus, that's going to be success, brothers. But to try to bring that into this age, and Paul, of course, spoke against this directly in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, especially in 4, the, the old cargo cult, the success cult. And a lot of people are caught up in it. And they give a lot of money to it. Why? Because they really hope it's true. It's like a rabbit's foot. And they treat Jesus like a rabbit's foot. And Moses is saying, look, I don't care how charismatic this person is. I don't care if they work miracles. Listen to their words and whether they comport with the Scriptures. And you'll see Jesus warning about this too in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, have we not worked miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. People who don't know the Lord sometimes have access to supernatural powers. So don't be fooled. Listen. Don't just look. Listen to what's being said. and Keep your Bibles open in front of you and in your mind at all times. Assess their words. Secondly, interestingly, he says, pass God's test. That is, do you realize that sometimes these toothy, smiley, miracle-working people are coming into your life for a reason for you? To test you. To see if you love the Lord. To see if you love His Word. To see if you take it seriously. Uh, I mentioned... uh, something about TBN, and I'm, you know, if if you're a big TBN fan, fine, but I have a few words for you there. There's a lot of heresy on TBN. A lot of heresy. There are a lot of good things, too. And I mentioned one heretic in particular one day, and a woman in our church, she was just determined to convince me that I was wrong because there are just a lot of good things by the uh, person that I was speaking of. Yeah, there are a lot of good things. That's what makes a false prophet so powerful, is that they do say some truths, and they do help some people. False prophets have always done that. In fact, what really made a false prophet in the Old Testament was that he generally would tell them, don't worry about God's judgment. He's going to keep his covenant with you and your disobedience will be forgiven. Don't worry about it. We're going to be successful. If you remember Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah, when he writes back to the people in exile who have faced disaster in Babylon, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem, were exiled to Babylon, they were dealing with false prophets who were saying, you're going to go right back. Jeremiah says, those people are lying. We were told that it was 70 years from the beginning. And that's the reason Jeremiah wrote them and said, you all settle down, build homes, and pray for and seek the prosperity of the city to which I've sent you. Don't listen to these false prophets. So false prophets will always try to appeal to your flesh and what your flesh wants in this life now. And uh, it's a test. Where's your heart set? 
Is your heart set on the best deal you can get in this life for this life only? Or is your heart set on eternity, on the new heavens and the new earth? And you're seeking to be faithful to Him now as you go through the wilderness on your way to the promised land. That's a test. And so when these things come, remember, that's what's that's at the bottom line for our sakes what's happening. And of course, you, you see this over and over again. You can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 16. And there you'll see, once again, he mentions this. I'm testing you. I'm testing you. So we're able to prove our faithfulness to the Lord in the way that we listen to various theologies and the way that we respond to them and how we analyze them and the conclusions we draw. Your mind and your heart, especially, are being tested by all of these voices out there. And then he says to them, you can see in verse Four. Look, let me remind you, here are the general stipulations, and he gives them to, him, to us again in verse 4, this wonderful list. Walk after the Lord. Just walk with Him, walk after Him, walk before Him. Colossians 2 says walk in Him, which is the particular New Testament version of walking with the Lord. It's walking in the Lord and He in us. Fear Him, keep His commandments, these things that we saw before, obey His voice. Another little nuance there. When you hear his word, it's like your father's voice. Can you, can you still hear your father's voice, those of you who have lost your fathers? You still hear that voice? Sands? It just immediately arouses something in me. Uh, I've had, uh, in the middle of the night, I've heard his voice calling out to me in a dream. And I just wake up immediately. Well, how do you hear the voice of the Lord? Is it familiar to you? Is it something that gets your attention? So it's not just the commandments, it's personal. It's His voice through those commandments. Serve Him. Do you see yourself as a servant of the Lord? Are you His willing worker? His butler? His field worker? His employee? Are you fired up about it? Serve the Lord. And then look at this last phrase, hold fast to Him. This is, you know, we see a similar list in chapter 10, verse, verses 12 and 13. But here's a little addition that's very important. Hold fast to him. That's covenant language. That's marriage language. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to or cleave to his wife. This is the word cleave. So cleave to God. Bind yourself to him in a holy covenant unbreakable covenant it's this kind of relationship and he he reminds us of that here's the answer to bad theology cleave to the lord love him fear him there's your answer so the test in in listening to various winds of doctrine and deciding what you're going to believe it all comes from these general stipulations whether your heart is with the lord and then you'll you'll do the necessary study you say, I haven't studied apologetics. I haven't studied comparative religion. That's okay. You will in time. As you're challenged with different things, you'll go and study. Why? Because you'll love the Lord. That's what he's saying. Pass the test with your heart. Now, look at the third element of this. In verse 5, I mean, here we get a really stringent response. He says, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Why? Well, he has taught high treason against the sovereign Lord. And he's taught you treason against the only one who can really help you. Look at verse 5. This God that he's teaching treason against is the one who brought you out of Egypt. 
Do you think Moloch can get you out of Egypt? Do you think Baal or Ashtaroth could get you out of Egypt? This false prophet is getting you to, to adopt a worldview or a philosophy or a theology or devotion to another God who can't do one dang thing for you. That God doesn't exist. He's blind. He's deaf. He's stupid. He doesn't, he's, he's like a big rock. He can't do a thing for you. It's ridiculous. This guy wants you to commit high treason against the one who delivers you and saves you and have you bow down before money or something else that can't do a dang thing for you. That's how, that's how awful this is. So he says, put him to death. Why? Well, the big phrase here is the last one in verse 5. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Purge the evil. Now, a lot of folks would take a verse like this and say, you see, you Christians, you're, you're violent. These fundamentalists who believe the Bible, they go out and kill people who disagree with them. And you can take New England and the witch hunts, and there's a good example. Well, actually, that is a pretty good example of someone who misinterpreted the Bible, misapplied it. Our forefathers, uh, our New England forefathers, were very thoughtful Christians, a lot more thoughtful than we are. But there are a few things that got wrong. You cannot reestablish a new Israel. You can establish a new England, but you can't establish a new Israel. And they got confused between New England and New Israel. And when you try to impose the theocracy in a, a non-theocratic environment, you're going to create problems and you're going to disobey the, the law of the Lord because there's nothing... We're in, we're in dispersion. You notice when the Jews went to Babylon, they didn't kill the Babylonians, Babylonians for their false worship. Now, they spoke to them about it, but they didn't kill them. Why? They're in Babylon. Now, when they're in the Holy Land... They're supposed to wipe out all the paraphernalia of false worship. And if someone won't repent, they're either there to leave the land or be destroyed if you're in a holy land. But when you're in Babylon, you, you build houses there and get along with the Babylonians and you have your church there, but you're in dispersion. And here's what Peter says, we're in dispersion. So we don't have a holy land. And that theological principle is vital, isn't it? When people don't get that one right, they really create all kinds of wickedness. Islam came later, of course, after Christ, you know, five or six hundred years later. And they're going back to an Old Testament approach. They have no Messiah. And they have no New Testament. And so there's no way for them out of this theologically. They've entrapped themselves with a violent man who is teaching a violent religion. If you have warrant from God to create a holy land and to purge it, that those acts of, of killing and so forth are sanctioned by God himself. But if you go out and do that without sanction, you're just a murderer. So what's happened now is we're in dispersion. We get it that we're in a period that's waiting for the next theocracy. But meanwhile, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this will be on page 2197.
and look at the bottom of that text on page 2197. This will be 1 Corinthians 5.13. Look at the last phrase. Purge the evil person. And you could translate uh, from Deuteronomy evil person if you wanted to. Purge the evil from among you. Purge, purge the evil person from among you. Aha. Okay. So see, this is what you want to do. If you want to figure out, now, how do I apply the Old Testament today? Boy, there are many ways to do that. We're doing them as we go through. But here's an obvious one. If someone takes a text, if an apostle takes a text, or if Jesus takes a text and uses it and explains it like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, he explains many Old Testament texts there. Paul explains many Old Testament texts in Romans. And here he's explaining Deuteronomy 13 for you. Okay, all right, this is good. What, what, what is it then? Well, look at the beginning of chapter 5 there in 1 Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That would be you Christians, you church people, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the outsiders, the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Okay, so it looks like a, a guy is having an affair with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, so there's what he's saying. Let this person be excommunicated. Let him be taken out of the communion. Let him be disciplined when he's committing that kind of immorality that everybody recognizes is wrong. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. So when a person is disfellowshipped or excommunicated, he is spiritually handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, in the Old Testament, that would have been the end of it. But look what Paul adds to this. He says, For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what we see in the New Testament is that you're not only doing the Lord honor and glory, you're not only doing the church a favor by purging her of her iniquity, you're actually doing the one excommunicated a favor. For he experiences temporal judgment in order that he might avoid eternal judgment. So if you excommunicate someone or you discipline someone in your fellowship, that's not the last word. That's, that's, your, that's your extreme intent and purpose and effort to recover the man. Your boasting is not good and so on. Uh, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You see he's saying there, don't you know that if somebody does this and you don't do anything about it, before long you'll have three other people doing it because they say, well, he did it and it seemed to be fine. The leaven's the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are leaven, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed 
or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. There you have it. That when you have false teaching that leads to departure from the Lord's way, or you have sexual immorality or any other kind of immorality that's not san- something that's not sanctioned by the Word of God, then it's our obligation to react as a community. We tend to think that that's just someone's private business. Well, it is their private business, but if they're a brother in Christ, it is family business. I, I said brother. That means family. And if something like that happens in your family, brothers, you're responsible for it to some degree. You're only responsible to, to the degree that you are supposed to do what you're supposed to do. If your child is involved in some form of immorality, you're not responsible for the immorality. You're responsible for your response. And the same way in the church, you're not responsible for the immorality. You're responsible for your response. Now, if your response is not adequate, now you're responsible for the immorality. You share in the immorality if you don't respond to it appropriately. Now, that's what Moses is saying to these people on the east side of the river. If you all want to hang on to this land, get something clear. That people who will be very charismatic and very winsome will try to take you away. And if you don't respond to them appropriately, you're going down the drain with them. And frankly, they did. Hundreds of years later, finally, they had, they had been so ill-disciplined they were overwhelmed with the wickedness in their own families. And they ended up in Babylon. Now look at the second instance that he refers to. And that is even closer to us. Not charismatic religious leaders, but family and friends. This gets hairy. He says, even if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, your own children, or the wife you embrace... Or your friend who is as your own soul entices you. And look at this, this word secretly. You see how it gets even more nuanced and the evil is more nuanced. You have these close relationships and they'll tell you their little secrets. Their confidential secrets that are rebellious. And he's saying, if if you listen to them, you'll be in the same trouble. And look what he says in verse 9. You shall kill him. Yikes. Kill our own family. Well, of course we don't physically kill our family. But here is what's being said. He is talking to a people who are basically a tribal people. Twelve tribes, right? If you go into the Middle East right now, and you go sit in a tent of a Bedouin, and you begin to understand how they think, you will see they're very tribal. And as we discovered in Iraq, if you want to make any progress in that country, you get the tribal leaders. They're called sheikhs. And you get them together, and you get them to agree. And once they agree, you're all set to go. Because there's one ultimate moral value. Loyalty to 
for the honor of your tribe. That is the one moral principle that applies. So if you want to get along politically or militarily, you must learn to use that. And we did. Because it is the value that they have. If you go into, uh, into uh, many of the countries in the continent of Africa, what our brothers and sisters will tell us there, one of the big problems they deal with all the time is how to teach people that their loyalty to Christ and their loyalty to the church, that is, brothers and sisters in Christ, trumps old tribal loyalties. Africa was astonished at what happened in Rwanda, in Burundi, some years ago. There was a vicious, dramatic, vivid case of tribal loyalty trumping everything else they knew and every other commitment they had. If you're in a culture where that's true, then it's very difficult to teach a new way of thinking. Now, we may not think of ourselves as tribal, but there's a sense in which we are. We're, a little bit, we're, we're obviously more individualistic, which brings its own problems. But we do have our tribal connections. And here's what Moses is saying to a fundamentally tribal, culturally tribal people. You're going to have to deal with that if you want to have the Lord as your number one commitment. Your tribe cannot be your number one commitment. Your loyalty to family cannot be your number one commitment if you're going to follow the Lord. That's what he's saying. And he's saying the same thing to us as well. Now, look, the advice that's given, there are basically four things that are said here. In verse 8, he says, Do not yield, but remain steadfast. You shall not yield to him, or listen to him. I know some wives who tell me that, you know, I, I really would love to go to church, but my husband's not a believer. And it just, you know, it would just make him angry and he would feel alone if I went to church. So I think my ministry is to stay home. Like hell. And I didn't use that word unintentionally. I mean exactly what I said, like hell. That's what hell will be. Alliances based on what we think other people want to soothe their flesh so that our flesh can get along with them too. That's hell. When you get married to the Lord, gentlemen, that's your number one marriage and it's for eternity. And any other marriage is temporary. It only lasts as long as you live. And it's conditional. It's conditioned on your first commitment, which is to the Lord. And I don't know how many times I've had those kinds of conversations with wives. You know what? You need to rise up and be a woman of God. And your husband may actually benefit from that spiritually. But even if he doesn't, the Lord will be honored in it. So let's get going. I know some adult men who compromise the way they go about certain things, whether it's other outside relationships or their business or even their, their social connections based on what they think mom and dad are going to think. I'm talking about men my age who still think that way. Uh, some of you belong to the country club. I think you've got one African-American member, you know, since I've been here for 16 years. And, you know, when, I, when I've asked you all what's going on over there, well, you know, it, there's, not, there's no racist policy. Uh, well, okay, there's no racist policy. Then why, why don't we get some people from other ethnic groups? Well, you know, it's, 
I know, yeah, it's dad. And some of you need to rise up and tell your dad you're done with this, that you're a Christian man and that you love him. And one way you're going to describe, display your love for him is to lead a Christian life. Let's get on with it. There is tremendous power in the generations. And some people don't deal with the race issue because back in the back of their mind, they remember what the grandfather said or did and they don't want to dishonor his memory by apologizing or saying something that would sound apologetic about something that was done 50 years ago that your grandfather was in the middle of. You don't want to dishonor him. Gentlemen, who would you rather dishonor? And then when people are some black and white politicians are making statements, calling certain people white devils. And I ask, when a black politician calls white people white devils, where is the black clergy? To say that we, we don't identify with that. Where is the white clergy? When statements and decisions are being made that are just purely racist. Where are the Christian men? when racist statements are, are being di uh, distributed out there and there doesn't seem to be any shame, doesn't seem, there doesn't seem to be a prophetic voice from the church. And I'll tell you why. We've got friends and family and history. And we don't want to embarrass ourselves. Here's what Moses is saying. If you don't want to embarrass yourself, then you can go to hell. If you want to be my people and lay hold of the promised land, if you want to stay in covenant with me, then rise up and keep the covenant. And if you want to know what he thinks about justice, we'll get to that. He has a few things to say about it. And my people will rise up and be a just people. And they will not allow the secret little family secrets to dominate their morality, their social justice, and the way they go about living their lives. So he says, do not yield, but remain steadfast. And look at uh, verse 8b. Nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him. Do not exempt him, but discipline him. I know I've, I've had cases in the church where, say, a young man, I'm thinking of a case right now, was involved in uh, sexual immorality. And the elders of the church, this is years ago, it wasn't at this church. The elders of the church... We're seeking to deal with this man. And you know what the daddy did? He, the, the daddy had a reputation for being a spiritually minded man. He was not a member of our church. But that daddy asked for an audience with the session and pled with them to leave his son alone. Well, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Probably every time that he was in trouble in school, the daddy goes and complains at the teacher. Gentlemen, when you follow the Lord and He's your God, his standards, His presence, His rule dominates everything, beginning with your family. Everything. And we all together come under the judgment of His Word. And we submit all of our relationships to Him. And when there's a side to be taken, we take the Lord's side. And you'll find in Exodus 32, Moses commended the Levites because after they'd committed idolatry. The Levite stood up and defended the Lord and carried out his, his judgments. And that's one thing that gave them credibility as the, the priests in the house of God because they would take the Lord's side. And it only counts when it hurts, when it's someone close to you. That's the reason that Moses says, this is a test. 
So let us, with, with all of our love and tenderness for our families, believe me, I love my own. But when they come under discipline of some sort, I'm to help them humble themselves to the discipline of the Lord in the environment where they are. So do not exempt them, but discipline them. And thirdly, 8C, he says, nor shall you conceal them. That is, don't enable them, but expose them. Look at the friendship of Jonathan and David. How would they ever have a friendship? Well, they wouldn't. If Jonathan were not willing to expose his own father as an evil man, and if Jonathan were not able to renounce the royal dynasty for the sake of the covenant with God, and it's because of his covenant with God that he made covenant with David, a new dynasty, and gave up his own dynasty with his father. Jonathan was supposed to be king. And he gave up his earthly kingship and his, the favor of his father. His father was really royally, literally royally ticked off with Jonathan because he was favoring David. But Jonathan had made covenant with the Lord and therefore there was no question about where his loyalties w- would be. So you don't expose, you don't, you don't uh, enable or hide or conceal, we expose evil. And fourthly, in verses 9 through 11, he says, your hand shall be first against him. That is, do not evade the issue, but confront the issue. Why? Two things. For the honor of the Lord. You pick that up in verse 10. And verse 11, for the health of the church. He says, so that all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness. So what the way you respond to, to evil in your own inner circle of friends and family has everything to do with the honor of the Lord in your life and the seasoning effect that you have. Now, this is done with love and tenderness. One of the best examples of this, um, this discipline of not evading issues with your friends but confronting them happened uh, in my own theological seminary. Uh, I really enjoyed my time at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. We had some wonderful professors there. And uh, one of them uh, just, just died here recently, Dr. Roger Nicole. Uh, and Roger was very, very good friends with a New Testament professor there uh, whose name I won't mention. They had been lifelong uh, faculty together. They'd kind of grown up together on the faculty of Gordon uh, Conwell. And the New Testament professor ended up publishing a book that violated the theological standards of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and I think violated the standards of the Bible itself. Uh, I mean, the man's a believer and he's a wonderful professor, but he was off base. So the faculty gets together and seeking to decide what do we do? And to their credit, they realized that the New Testament professor needed to go. That he had violated the standards. That he, there was evil doctrine and they felt they needed to respond and so they dismissed him. And when they decided how to handle this publicly, how would you handle such a thing? You're going to let the president do it? You're going to let the academic dean do it? Dr. Nicole said, I'll do it. His closest friend. Why? I think maybe he read this text. When there's discipline to be carried out, if you're the best friend, why not you? Why not display the honor and glory of God and show and demonstrate in a very clear way that God is first even with your closest friends? 
And I remember when we alumni, by then I was an alum, alum, when we alumni got the letter from Roger to make the announcement, there was a little phrase in there, Roger has a sense of humor, and he quoted or misquoted Martin Luther. And he said, as a final statement, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. No, let goods and kindred go, New Testament professors also. (laughs) And we all laughed, we all cried, and we all realized that Roger had upheld the honor and glory of God in his work. Gentlemen, that's the way it works. Now lastly, he says, even a large group of people. Verses 12 through 18, you have some worthless fellows who go in and take over a whole town. Well, first of all, you'll notice in verse 14, uh, inquire carefully. (laughs) Don't jump to conclusions. So many zealous men, I'll go and I'll take care of that issue. Well, you you end up misquoting people. I can think of some examples we don't have time to talk about, but how Christian people have just jumped to conclusions that someone said this or meant that or did that, and they were completely wrong and made a total idiot out of themselves and embarrassed themselves and the church and other people. So inquire carefully. But after inquiring, if you find out that a whole group of people, I mean a big group of people, are going in another direction, I think this is what Moses is saying. First of all, you have to condemn the group or at least condemn what they're, what they're doing. And, you know, this, even the Congress can do this every once in a while. They can condemn certain behaviors or it's called a condemnation of a person at times. And we've lost our ability to do this. We've lost our ability to be shocked anymore. C.S. Lewis once said, if you don't understand the imprecatory psalms, the imprecatory psalms are the psalms that curse the enemies. Lewis said, if you don't understand the imprecatory psalms, it's probably not because you're such a sensitive Christian man. It's probably because you've lost all your moral sense. We don't understand uh, good and evil, right and wrong anymore. We don't know how to censure something anymore. But the first thing you do is you censor it. And... um, uh, secondly, verses 16, 17, you don't take any benefit from the group. You don't, you don't censure them so that you can take over their business or so that you can benefit. No, you must be very careful not to benefit at all. If, if you're in the mode of having to censure someone, and often in times in church circles, this is denominational business. I find, look, if you belong to a church or you belong to a denomination, you are responsible for how you respond to all those statements. And if our General Assembly makes a statement on something and you think it's wrong, you have to rise up and speak against it in some proper format. Write a letter. Do something. The same way with your local church. If they're taking a position that is wrong, you must rise up and speak against it. And then you must not benefit from any of the statements you make. And then lastly... Trust the faithfulness of God. Back to the covenant, verses 17 and and 18. He says, remember, 18, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all His commandments and so on, then He will have compassion on you, verse 17. He will multiply you as He swore to your fathers. And I've listed there several New Testament examples of that where the crown of righteousness will be placed upon our heads. We We have a glorious future set out before us. So whatever you're facing in this life, And if you're walking with God, you will face it. You will have opposition. And the most difficult opposition will be the relationships that are closest to you. It will hurt. But don't forget that there's a crown. There is royalty. 
There is great reward. There is a new heavens and a new earth waiting for us. And we're absolutely convinced of that. And therefore we don't sell our, we don't sell our legacy and our heritage for a bowl of soup like Esau did. And that bowl of soup is what's around you, this world. Don't sell out and try to gain temporally at the expense of your eternal intimate relationship with God. Let us pray. Father, we uh, acknowledge that there are so many threats to our spiritual life and our spiritual witness that are around us, and sometimes they're very closely around us. We also acknowledge that the greatest threat is within our own hearts. We ask that you'll make us men who know how to fight the battle and who take it seriously, who are men who restore others gently so that we ourselves will not be tripped up, and that we use the weapon of love and truth in all that we do, that there's not a note of harshness or, or inconsiderateness or unloving character within any of us, but rather a determination to love you and to love our neighbors. Please use us today as we would hold forth the love and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in everything that we do and say and think. For we pray in His name. Amen.